How are you? Real worshipful atmosphere today, right? I want to talk to you today about Jesus. And I call it the divine paradigm for life. He really sets the lines of our lives. Richard Foster, in his, uh, I would consider, landmark work called um, Streams of Living Water, offers a view of Christian practice over the ages through what he calls six great traditions. Now, within every branch of the Christian faith, no matter how trouble-filled or obscure, when you dig into the spiritual practices being emphasized, you find that in these age-old practices performed by faithful followers of Christ, that there is alignment with the teaching of Scripture. Alignment that covers the books of Moses to the prophets, the wisdom books to the gospels, the epistles to the apocalyptic writings. And I want to talk to you today about some of those great traditions. So, let's pray. Father, we bring ourselves to you and we pray that your word today and the words I speak would build and strengthen your church where it's your word that it would be like light that it would give insight to those who are seeking insight for those who are crying out for understanding today that they would understand in Jesus name amen are you good okay first thing I would like to do is a little exercise so can you close your eyes for me and just imagine Jesus present in physical form right here right now, walking among us. Imagine him close to you, standing next to you. The scripture says that the Lord is with us. So it's not a fantasy, it's reality. Imagine in your mind's eye, Jesus is right here, right now. What are you feeling? Become aware of how you feel about that. Okay. In these days, God has been, and I believe he is, bringing together various streams of tradition within the church. It's something I've noticed as a Christian. Um, many years ago, I penned a prophetic word, which I keep sort of in my archives. And in there, I felt the Lord speak to me about how the season of breaking down denominational barriers has achieved its purpose. And it does seem, even in my little history on the planet that I can see how there has been a bleeding across different denominational groups and maybe you've noticed that yourself. These forms of devotion exist, existing within other traditions or dimensions of faith and practice have in some cases been very isolated for, from one another for a long time and that's no surprise if you understand church history. The church has undergone enormous change in the last 2,000 years. Um, I've got a quote here by uh, Richard Foster that 
gives a little insight into it. It says, over the centuries, some precious teaching or vital experience is neglected until, at the appropriate moment, a person or a movement arises to correct this omission. Numbers of people come under the renewed teaching, but soon, vested interests and a host of other factors come into play, producing resistance to the renewal, and the new movement is denounced. In time, it forms its own structures and its own community life, often in isolation from other Christian communities. So if you want to get a sense of that isolation over the years, have a look at this other slide, which is a take on church history. And you can see how we have been really good at fragmenting ourselves. So a cursory look at the slide behind me shows that the church existed together loosely for about a thousand years years as a single unit, after which it fragments into formal groups as individuals try and correct what they see as omissions or errors in the church. And then belief and power grabs and corruption all has a part to play in that history. I don't know if you know this, but according to the Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, there existed roughly 43,000 denominations in 2012. And it's expected to grow to 55,000 by 2025. Isn't that incredible? Many of the inspirations for your and my faith are from people that come from denominations outside of the one that we often find ourselves in. Our isolation from, disagreement with, and the differences with one another is often the most obvious thing we point to in the Christian church. But we sometimes forget that despite these agendas and the selfish ambition of some which drive us apart, God keeps for himself a remnant wherever he is truly worshipped. And as such, you and I need to be slow to ignore other Christian traditions. The identification of corruption within a system or individuals within it is not and should not be seen as an automatic mandate for us to pull it down. If this is the case, Saul's cannot become Paul's. The standard bearer for any form of devotion or dimension of faith or practice is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He is the plumb line by which we discern truth from error, human ambition from true spiritual authority, true worshipers from whitewashed tombs. Are you with me? So, these six traditions can be broadly categorized as, and that will be up behind me, prayer and intimacy, purity of heart, life in the spirit, proclamation of the gospel, and the sacrament of the present moment. They're not meant to represent the main branches of Christianity or any specific denomination, and they're not perfect in their definitions or delineations. Rather, you've got to think of these as like major thrusts across Christendom, which, in which some have modeled to a greater extent, um, uh, people have modeled how to live and how to move within such traditions. It's really a genuine act of humility to learn from others who have gone before us. So today, in my prayer, I've been thinking, which ones do I focus on? Because I've been felt drawn to these. 
And I have come down to and want to share with you today prayer and intimacy and purity of heart. Prayer and intimacy and purity of heart and how they relate to the Lord Jesus. Are you with me on this little journey into these things? Okay, so key in all of this is however they are bundled and however they are defined, they all grow out of Jesus's ministry. His prayer and his intimacy, his purity of heart, his life in the spirit, his advocacy for justice and peace, his proclamation of the gospel, his speaking of the sacrament and the present moment. They are like six shining aspects of the character of Christ. And my hope is that if you leave here today, at the very least, you have a better understanding of Jesus Christ. But at the best, you leave with wonder at the man we believe to be God himself. If we want to appreciate the power of a church that is united, not just here, but the global church, and we had some prayers today for that, the one he's returning for, we must always return to Jesus as the primary giver of our identity as a collective. No one models these dimensions of spiritual life more fully than Jesus himself. So Jesus ultimately then sets the divine paradigm for your and my life. Hebrews 12 verse two says, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. Jesus sets the tone, Jesus draws the lines. And so, attention to Jesus' life gives us important clues for how we live ourselves. Look at the scripture, Romans 5 verse 10. It says, for if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more surely having been reconciled we will be saved by his life. This save refers to entering an eternal kind of life, but not in some distant kind of future. Right now, in this broken and sorrowful world, we are saved into the life of Christ. You're not waiting for the effects of surrender to God, surrender to Christ to take effect in some other future. No, it happens now. In John 17, verse four, Jesus says that eternal life is knowing the Father. You start knowing the Father now. So eternal life starts here on earth. So when we carefully consider how Jesus lived while he was amongst us in the flesh, we learn how to live, truly live, empowered by him with who he is and he empowers us to the end of the age. We are to imitate Christ, not in some slavish or a literal fashion, but by catching the spirit and power in which he lived. Do you hear me? By catching the spirit and power. It's not about slavish devotion, but it's about learning to walk in his steps. That's literally what Peter, 1 Peter encourages us, to walk in his example. So, this is why the gospels are such a key part of our scripture. They're not merely human letters and recollections. They're the actual words of Jesus Christ, captured in written form, and wonderfully for us, with the context of the time and what was happening in that moment. In the Gospels, we see how Jesus lived amongst human beings, just like us. But he displays perfect unity. Perfect unity with the will of the Father. Steps you and I are supposed to emulate. 
and he shares and we share Jesus' vision of God, Jesus' vision of love, Jesus' vision of hope, Jesus' feelings and his habits. So, church, we should encourage one another to remain immersed in these gospel narratives so that you and I can understand how Jesus thought. What is his perception on this particular thing? And then making constant application to our own lives. Are you with me? The reason many of us are so easily confused by every wind and wave of teaching or easily slip into secular thinking is because we're simply unaccustomed to Jesus' perception or insight on a matter or sometimes there's very, very clear instruction on a particular thing. Can I encourage you that here in this church community, you encourage one another to consider how Jesus in his living, in his living, provides a paradigm for your living. Yes, that is so key in Christian community. So I said I want to cover two of those dimensions of faith and practice. Number one, if you've got notes or a little notepad, um, number one, prayer and intimacy. This is also known in church history as the contemplative or prayer-filled life. The contemplative or prayer-filled life. Now, I'm not going to give you a major history lesson on this because it's endless, but this tradition really goes back to somebody called Anthony of Egypt. And it's interesting, if you don't come from the church traditions where these early uh, church leaders or church fathers are often spoken about, they seem so distant and they can seem so strange and often their responses to things can be so almost embarrassing to our sort of modern sensibilities. But really, in Anthony of Egypt, you have a a young man growing up in a Christian family whose parents uh, die when he was a teenager. He's got a sister to care for uh, and all the cares of... uh, that falls onto his shoulders. Uh, Anthony is moved in church by the words uh, of having to sell all your possessions and give it to Christ and believes that God speaks to him and he wants to pursue God like this. Um, He, along with others at the time, feel the church is increasingly secularized and as a response to all of this, he sells his father's estate, ensures that his sister is set up well and he goes to pursue God by going into the desert and eschewing all of these sort of in his case, modern trappings of life, to seek God. Now, yes, a bit strange perhaps to a modern uh, uh, perspective, and perhaps if you don't come from a church tradition where these things are sort of held up in more esteem, it is sort of seen as the weirdo on the side. But let's just think about it. We don't have hundreds and thousands of examples of people going into the desert. It was a handful of people that did that. These people were driven by a deep desire to see Christ exalted in a context where they felt the church was losing its way. It's no different to today, is it? At least not in its essence. And before we judge these people so quickly for the weirdness in their example, because, I mean, there was a few weird things if you go and read it, it is quite incredible, and we can learn from them. Deep, sincere, great intensity. So we see in this sort of contemplative, prayerful tradition a great intensity of prayer and solitude. So if you ask the question, what is the contemplative tradition? There should be a slide behind me. It says simply that it's a life of prayer and solitude that culminates in loving attention to God. This is sort of, if you've heard of the desert fathers and mothers, Anthony of Egypt would have been the start of that tradition. And and it goes on for several hundred years uh, following that. But essentially, the culmination of their learning is that through this intense life of prayer and solitude, I end up loving God 
deeply because I've given my thoughts and my heart and my attention to such an intense uh, way. Um, some of the uh, devotional masters in this tradition talks very commonly about this stream as an experience of deep love for the Father and fire. How interesting that those who sought so deeply and gave so much time um, in solitude and prayer felt like it was like fire and it was one of deep love. So why should you and I explore it? Simply three things. Because through deep prayer and solitude, we experience, number one, the divine rest that comes from casting, casting all our cares on the Lord, marinating our mind in a constant sense of giving over in prayer. Number two, it fans the flames of our first love. When you give yourself in prayer intensely, you struggle to give yourself to other things. You're really confronted with that which you love or not. And number three, it forces your Christian life beyond pure cerebral faith. You have to give yourself over into the mysticism that is a life of prayer. There is a part of prayer where the explanations simply stop and you have to give yourself over into the presence of the Lord. Are you with me? So the pitfalls in this tradition, I would say, is that the mother looking after the children with diapers cannot withdraw into the desert or the lake district or something like that. Or the person very busy with XXXXX. So the danger is, of course, that in our enlightenment and sometimes in, uh, in these traditions is that we, we forget that times and seasons are at play. Everybody can't do it exactly the same way. So let's humbly learn from what we can learn wherever we are and whatever season of life we're at. So... Let's remember that Jesus is the inspiration for the contemplative prayer-filled tradition. And nobody like Jesus shows prayer and intimacy with the Father. Um, look at these three scriptures. John, on three occasions, pens what Jesus says. He says, the Son can do nothing on his own, but only what he sees the Father doing, or whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. Number two, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And number three, the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Pretty clear that Jesus feels that what he's doing is very much directed, not of his own accord. One of the hallmarks of this intimacy like a recurring pattern in a quilt is Jesus' prayer life. He's simply immersed in prayer and he often retreats into solitude. I'm gonna read you a list of scripture examples of his prayer life. You might wanna close your eyes, but just in the sort of cumulative effect of the next number of things I'm reading you, just be sort of overwhelmed by the picture of this Jesus. He was baptized by John the Baptist and while he was baptized, he was praying. In preparation for choosing of the 12, he went up to the mountain alone and spent the night in prayer. After an exhausting evening of healing many who were sick and casting out many de demons, Jesus still rose early in the morning while it was dark and went out to a deserted place and there he prayed. Jesus was praying alone when he was prompted to ask his disciples, who do you say that I am? When Jesus took Peter, James, and John up on the mountain to pray, it led to the great transfiguration experience. And Luke notes that the appearance of Jesus' face was changed while he was praying. After the disciples had failed to heal a sick child, Jesus took an, uh, they took the matter to Jesus and he explained that this kind can only come out through prayer. Jesus' fierce anger 
comes forward when he sees how people turn the temple, which he says was to be a house of prayer, into a den of robbers. It was after he finished praying in a certain place that the disciples asked him to teach them how to pray. He told the disciples to say, Abba, Father, when they pray. He gave parables about the need to pray always and not to lose heart. He taught his disciples to pray in secret and to pray for those who persecute you. And then when praying, to forgive if you have anything against anyone and to believe that if you will say something in prayer that it will come to pass and to petition the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into the harvest. Following his experience of feeding 5,000, Jesus immediately went to the mountain to pray. Luke notes that Jesus would withdraw to deserted places to pray often. Jesus was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days where he prayed. He was due to a deserted place by himself after learning. He was in a deserted place praying by himself after learning of the beheading of John the Baptist. He says to his disciples to come away to a desert place all by themselves and rest. And in Gethsemane, his sweat became like drops of blood while he was praying fervently. That's the list I wanted to give you. It's just so clear that Jesus, as inspiration for this contemplative, prayerful tradition, shows us a life of deep and consistent prayer and intimacy in fullness and breathtaking beauty. Amen? Even a quick look at Jesus' love and intimacy with his Father should stir within you and me a longing for a similar deep and rich and full experience of the divine. Friends, I ache for such a steadfast faith. Don't you? Jesus points the way. So, for 30 seconds, just pray in silence for your own prayer life now and invite this Jesus who models this for us to teach you. Amen. You still with me? The second tradition, which I titled Purity of Heart. Now, we just spoke about the contemplative or prayer-filled life. It forms the foundation of this next tradition, which is holy living. It's through an ever-deepening intimacy with God that we are enabled to enter into an ever-deepening renewal of our hearts and our minds, which brings us then to this tradition referred to as the holiness tradition or the virtue-filled life. Holiness tradition or the virtue-filled life. It's all to do with purity of heart. This tradition focuses so much on the inner transformation and the formation of holy habits because we can rely on deeply ingrained holy habits of virtue to make our lives function appropriately. And by functioning appropriately like this, it brings forth substantial character formation. And it's that character 
that allows you to stand when the enemy and the world is waging war against you. Also, it is the lack of this deeply ingrained moral fiber that is eroding right now in the West and why we are seeing so many of the social challenges we are seeing. So, simply put, I've got another slide, what is the holiness tradition? It's simply the ability to do what needs to be done when it needs to be done. That word virtue is arete in the Greek, and it comes from a long history of philosophy, which simply means, arete means simply to function well. So, virtue is good habits, you function well, vices is what makes you dysfunctional. So, a holy life in the holiness tradition is a set-apart life, a different life that works well as the Father intends for it to work. A holy life, a set-apart life, filled with this holy virtue, helps you to function as the Father intends for you to function. Make sense? So why do I pursue the holiness tradition? Why do I draw from those Christians that's gone before in this tradition? Because it helps me to be supremely effective and efficient in godly living. Are you with me? Famous adherents of this tradition are people like the church father, Tertullian or John Wesley or Dietrich Bonhoeffer. As the inspiration for this tradition, just as the previous one, we see the Lord Jesus moving amongst children and women and men in ways that are always timely. He's always appropriate. He's always capable. This ingrained holiness and virtue is on powerful display when Jesus is tempted in the desert. He faces a temptation that's undoubtedly personal, but it foreshadows a greater dimension. And I want to talk you through those three dimensions in his temptation. Economic, religious, and political temptation. So how does Jesus, through virtuous living, show us in this way? Number one, in economic temptation, Jesus is tempted to turn stones into bread. So more than his personal hunger, he's tempted towards being self-sufficient. The miracle bread maker. The man who can sort of save the day. He counters it by saying, one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. His unwillingness thus to turn those stones into bread is showing his complete submission to the Father's authority in his life. He could have turned them, but he was waiting for their instruction. He later talked about, I will only do what the Father tells me to do. So Jesus is waiting for the Father. So in the same way, you and I ought to be careful not to think of our own efforts as the sole source of our economic prosperity. Jesus shows that obedience in holiness may even drive us to seasons of perceived lack. He reminds us that our ultimate source, oh, that God is our ultimate source and that we should resist the devil's temptation to rely on our own strength in all matters. Just because you can, Jesus would say, doesn't mean you should. Are you with me? So my 30-second request of you is to pray that you would rely on Christ in every moment of economic temptation. Let's take 30 seconds and pray for ourselves.
Amen. The next temptation I turned the religious temptation he faced. Think of it like this. So Jesus is said, leap from here and then the angels will catch you. If Jesus did that on the Temple Mount, because that's where they were, and the angels would have caught him, it would have been instant recognition with the authorities of the day, the Jews and the temple priests, that this man must be divine. So by doing what Satan wanted him to do, he could have con instantly convinced them of his divine status. But he says, don't put the Lord your God to the test. Now, why would he say that? Why a test? Simply because testing something can reveal that you don't have faith in it. If I keep testing my wife, wave, wife, if I keep testing my wife to see if she loves or respects me by doing slightly subversive things that will provoke her to reveal her true intentions about what she's saying or doing, I'm not really trusting her, am I? To trust her is to free her from my suspicion of things. You don't test those you love. A lack of testing is a proof of faith. And in God's economy, faith and trust goes hand in hand. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. So Jesus was saying to Satan that I will wait for God to reveal my divinity at the appropriate time. I will trust him. And so sh you and I should do the same. We should trust the Lord. Sometimes a fleece before the Lord is appropriate thing. But I believe that most of the time it's suffering through patience and perseverance in faith because that's what Jesus models. Amen? Let's take 30 seconds and pray that we are not tempted to have a lack of trust in the Lord when it comes to our lives. Amen. The third temptation, the political temptation, was the promise of splendor. All the kingdoms of the world and its splendor I will give to you, Satan says. It was this possibility of worldwide political powers and it was a perfect fit with this messianic image that they had of Jesus. But Jesus rejected this kind of show of power. He says there's a different way of ruling which is serving, suffering, and dying. And in this, we see Jesus's messianic form of power. So let's remember within this temptation that lasting, beneficial societal change doesn't solely lie in political power. There's such a temptation today to see systems and structures and uh, institutions renewed through secular power political power, but it's flawed and it leads to unintended outcomes, including the oppression of people. 
It's only through the transformed human heart, the heart given to Christ and the heart that's now motivated by love that society has any chance of flourishing. That's why faithful groups of believers in churches like this around the world are so important because this is fertile ground that takes sinners to saints, it takes passive citizens to holy agents of change. We should meet like this, we should talk like this, and we should pray that God would send workers out into the structures of the world, into the systems of the world to effect change as salt and as light under the direction of the Father. Amen? Amen. Let's pray that in this temptation we do not see our own strength, our ambitions in politics as the solution to the problems of the world. 30 seconds. Amen. The Sermon on the Mount has been a source of Christian ethic for centuries, and it's been a fundamental sort of recipe for Christian conduct. I have a picture of uh, Jesus speaking to people. Um, that's an actual picture of Jesus. Uh, um, yeah, it was recently discovered. Um, at the heart of the Sermon on the Mount is, is really love reflects this godly virtue that drives all things. I've got a quote from the Bible author James Hastings that says, together, uh, that's the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes present a new set of ideals that focus on love and humility rather than force. Love and humility rather than force and mastery. They echo the highest ideals of Jesus' teachings on spirituality and compassion. That Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, covers topics such as being salt and light, true righteousness versus, for instance, the righteousness of the Pharisees, reconciliations with other people as a condition of true worship, adultery not being an act only but something that's in the heart, divorce, truthful speech, revenge, love of one's enemies, takes us far beyond the righteousness presented by the scribes and the Pharisees of the day. Uh, it takes us away from that sort of manipulative control that, we, that Jesus was so against talks about an inner life that transforms the heart and it builds deeply ingrained habits of virtue. If you want a modern example of this holiness tradition, it's Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Now, um, when he came to the conclusion that he, him and his friends are likely to be killed, on 21 July 1944, he penned, um, he penned four, he called it stations, uh, on the Road to Freedom, I think it was called. Um, I'll just read you the first one, but it so encapsulates as a one that we look, uh, somebody we look at as part of the sort of holiness tradition. 
the first piece he wrote was, if you set out to seek freedom, then learn above all discipline of soul and senses so that your passions and your limbs might not leave you confused hither and yon. Chaste be your spirit and body, subject to your own will and obedient to seek out the goal that they have been given. No one discovers the secret of freedom but through self-control. Self-control, friends, is a fruit of the Spirit, and Jesus sent the Spirit. So if we develop these habits, we will have the internal resources with which to respond righteously when we are faced with temptation. Who here struggles with temptation? Who here struggles? Develop the kind of habits that Jesus himself shows. What are the pitfalls of this tradition? Well, legalism. You didn't pray five hours this morning. Why not? Jesus prayed all the time, right? So the danger in this tradition, as good as it is, is to remember that we don't want to become legalistic or perfectionist over people and hold bars, but let it pull us in to a new life in Christ. So if you seek a life of purity in the way of the holiness and virtueful tradition, submerse yourself is my my suggestion in the Sermon on the Mount. We see Jesus modeling everything he's talking about there. And remember, we know about him in his ministry for three years. Many, many years, likely working in a carpenter shop, Jesus had an opportunity to live these out. He models as he walks amongst the people, heals the sick, gives sight to the blind, he brings good news to the oppressed. He's always appropriately speaking. He always is able to say the right thing. He's always to give the touch that's needed. He's always saying what's needed. That, dear friends, is what you and I should be looking at. We are always seamlessly able to move through this world, say what's appropriate, say what's right, because we draw from the internal resources deposited in us by the Spirit. Amen. Now, as I come into land, can we do that exercise again where you are imagining Jesus in the room? Just close your eyes for a moment. Looking at these two traditions, the contemplative or prayerful life, which is about purity of heart, looking at this tradition of holiness and virtue, Both these traditions, with examples from those who've gone before us, Jesus modeled those. Now that you're imagining Jesus here walking, what is Jesus saying to you? What is Jesus expecting of you? He sets the divine paradigm in prayer and intimacy and holiness and virtue. What is he whispering to you now? Let's take a moment of silence and trust for Jesus to speak now.
Amen. I believe that some of you have felt a pull to deeper waters. I believe some of you have felt the pull to holiness. Some of you need to simply start praying more and seek solitude. And I would encourage you today, make a quality decision to pray more. Seek solitude with Jesus. Let him guide you. Take inspiration of those who've gone before us, but let Jesus' life model that for you. For some of you, it's a matter of deep and new holy habits that need to start being formed. Maybe some of the issues that you've been struggling with, even things like eating, is maybe more of a holy character flaw than it is about all the temptations. Good habits burst within the spirit can have a transformational effect on our whole lives. We can't live as the early disciples of the early church lived because we're too far removed from them. We don't walk on the dusty streets of Palestine, anything like that. But we can imitate Christ and we can imitate the things that those who've gone before us have done. The basic patterns and the principles remain the same and that's what I'm bringing to you today. And the gospels, immerse yourself in the gospels because they give you a picture of how Jesus did this in his time. In them we see how Jesus trained himself in prayer and solitude and the disciplines. So let's imitate him in all aspects of his life. He calls out to us today, live a more consistent life, a more obedient life, a more fruitful life. Do what needs to be done when it needs to be done. Develop these holy habits and above all, anchor yourself in trusting the Father. In Jesus' name. Father, I pray that you would strengthen your people today. Thank you that you're calling them into deeper places. And Lord, we pray that they would discern which way to go. We pray, I just really pray for a deepening here in this community, a real deepening that brings a new Holy Spirit life. I feel like, Lord, there's some people that have been seeking for a way out or a new route. And to some extent, it is simpler than they have imagined. They just need to seek you, set time aside, trade off the things that they are spending time with for time with you. Thank you for what you're doing here. In Jesus' name, and everyone says, Amen. Amen. God bless you, brothers and sisters.